Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates, Send in the Clowns, The Phoenix Tube Company, CelebrityTrips.com, The Law Firm of Decalator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and Relish Restaurant of Kings Park. Here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. Joining us now is one of hockey's most colorful characters from its most colorful era. During his playing days, he fought with coaches and management, speaking his mind to his detriment. He played two seasons in the NHL for a total of 47 games. Yet, if you mention his name to NFL, NHL fans of that era, they will instantly recall him because of one of hockey's greatest goalie masks ever. He joins us now to talk about his new autobiography, co-written with author Greg Oliver, to tell his wild and at times, yes, loony story from his early days in Montreal, where his brother Norm became an NHL player through his stints with the OHA Oshawa Generals, the Ottawa Nationals, the Toronto Toros of the Rogue WHA, and the St. Louis Blues and the New York Rangers in the NHL. It is a thrill to welcome the man they call Gratuni the Looney, Gilles Graton, to WLIE Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Gilles. Hi, how are you? We're doing great. You know, it's interesting because your book starts off with the backstory of the mask. That's how the book starts out immediately, which may have never made its debut against the Blues had Ron Gresham been a better backgammon player and had you not picked up a National Geographic magazine. So could you pick up the story there and, and let our listeners uh, know all about the mask? Yeah, I was sitting on the plane. Uh, we were flying back to New York, and I was looking at, at this magazine, and National Geographic, and uh, there was a, it was a tiger, really. So uh, next time we're in Toronto, I called Greg Harrison, and uh, I showed him the picture, and I said, can you do a mask like that? He said, sure. So it, it took him seven days. And then he, uh, he called me and said, it's ready. So he sent it by, uh, I can't remember. I had to pick it up at the airport anyway. And uh, I picked up the mask, and uh, the night we played St. Louis, I, I had it under my, my seat, and uh, nobody saw it. So I... Uh, I went out to warm up with my cage mask, but when the game started, I, I had the mask underneath underneath my arm, and I, I went to the net, and uh, and then I put it on, and then you could hear the crowd go, whoo, <laughs> and, uh, and the referee, they looked down at me, at the mask, and they, they didn't start the game. They all came down and looked at my mask. They said, man, that's a really cool mask. So that's all, that's a, that's the story. You know, the book, like your playing days, is not your standard fare. You talk about your childhood, which you describe by using, uh, you know, and I doubt any other sports book actually references the movie The Accidental Tourist. Um, you mention a line from William Hurt in the 1988 film, uh, which was, I endure, I'm holding steady. While you weren't depressed a as a child, you seem to always question your existence. Can you tell us? A little bit more about how that feeling manifested itself in its in your daily life uh, about you know questioning your existence. Well, it, when I was a, when I was very very young, I, I uh, right away I questioned what I was doing in the body. You know, I I, uh, I I felt like I was sent back to prison. I don't know how to explain it, and uh, I just felt uh, all depressed to be uh, alive in this body and uh, I don't know it was uh, it was a weird feeling to be back on this plane of existence that's what that's the way I felt and I felt uh, really strange uh, to this planet I, I really felt really strange and uh, I don't know that's the way I felt 
you know, you talk in the book, AJ Carter, about previous lives and what you were. You were a warrior, Spanish conquistador, I guess it was, something like that. What did you really feel more comfortable than you felt in this body? You felt you would rather have been or felt you should have been uh, go back to a previous life? You mean uh, if I preferred a, a previous life? Yes. Yeah. Not really. You know, it's uh, this life is... Well, you know, when we die, we just leave this body. You know, it's, it's we're not the body. We're not even the mind. We leave everything behind. We're just a state of being. That's about it. And uh, I don't really prefer any life, any other life. I just, you know, this yeah. life is okay, you know. But I, I don't know. I, I don't prefer any life, really. You know, it's interesting because you point to the fact that your dad did a lot of shift work and was not around a lot for perhaps your lack of respect for authority figures, including your teachers in school. Do you think if there was a teacher who maybe got in your face and challenged your lack of respect back then, or if your dad had a typical nine-to-five life, do you think things for you might have been different? Oh, yeah, sure, because I had no... uh... In the sense, I had a good father, you know, but he was like he was like I said, he was always working, you know, like he was working like six days a week most most time, you know. So we were kind of left on our own, and I was I kind of grew up doing whatever I wanted, and uh, especially uh, when I got into a junior and WHA, I just started doing crazy shit, you know. I, I, there was like I, I had no boundaries, you know. There's no I had no limit. And I just did what if I felt like doing something, I just did it. I didn't give a shit. Right, mm. um, you know, and, and maybe if my dad would have kicked me in the ass and uh, beat the shit out of me once, like my dad never touched me, you know. He was a very, very, very kind man, you know. But uh, if, yeah. if, maybe if someone would have grabbed me by the neck and you know, show me the way. But I, I, I just grew up on my own in sense, you know, and I, I kind of screwed up my career that way, you know. Uh, Jills, just so you know, there are some boundaries here in the States as far as the S word, you know, based on the FCC. So we'll try to keep those boundaries. You know, I'll try to be the authority figure tonight. If we could just cut that a little right. bit on the S word, that would be great. All right. All right. Uh, you talk in the book about um, thinking about your choices and what your life would have been had you taken a different paths. One of those paths were baseball, where you were good enough to be invited to try out for the Expos, or if you followed your passion for music. John Davidson always wondered if you really did have a past life, as he once said he'd just walk in, drop his coat on the floor, go right over the piano. He could play classical piano and had never taken a lesson in his life. And he said, and I mean heavy classical music. You played guitar, Brian. Brian Dillon, uh, uh, the brother of Rangers, Wayne Dillon, um, you guys recorded a cover of the Beatles classic Follow the Sun, which got some airplay in Canada. Your love for music comes through every time you talk about it in the book. Where do you think that love of music came from? Well, it came from the Beatles. You know, we grew up, I grew up, I, w- I was born in 1952, so, you know, we grew up in, the, in Montreal with the Beatles, and uh, we, all, we all had guitars. All my friends, we had guitars, and we just... Uh, we just started to play music with the Beatles, and uh, we grew up with the Beatles. So that's that's where I got my love of music with the Beatles. You know, it's interesting because on this show we've had Ronnie Spector, we've had uh, Nils Lofgren, we've had John Amaranti, and we've been lucky enough to get them to to sing uh, for us. Is it possible you have either your guitar or your piano laying around, and maybe you could do something for us for a quick couple of seconds? Yeah, I'll do. Uh, I, I haven't played. <laughs> I don't play anymore, so. But I, I, I practiced a little bit this afternoon because, you know, I, I, I don't play. I, I have lost interest. But uh, I'll play a bit of Let It Be. All right. And, uh, 
I just practiced with my daughter. My daughter's never played, sung, sing that song before, so we it might not come out all right, but we're going to do a Norwegian word on the guitar, and then we're going to do Let It Be on the piano. Oh, I love it. All right, let's let's hear it. Okay, we'll start with uh, uh, Norwegian wood, and uh, I'd like to apologize to your listeners, okay? <laughs> Ahead of okay. time, all right, we got it. <laughs> okay, uh, can you hear it? Yeah. Can you hear that? Perfect, yeah. perfect. Okay, Norwegian wood, and uh, I'm not kidding, my daughter's never sang that never sang that song before, so I don't know, we, we just tried it like 15 minutes ago, so I hope it comes out okay, okay? All right, okay. sounds good. You hear it? Okay, no, it's okay, it's okay. So wait a minute. When was the last time you played guitar? Uh, maybe last year. Last year. So now, now that also interests me because you played hockey and and yet throughout the book you talk about how it really didn't interest you. You love music, but now you've lost the passion for that. That yeah. that it's so surprising. I mean, things that you excel at that you lose interest in. Do you, have you ever come to grips as to why that's happened? Uh, that, I guess it's my state of being. I've lost interest in uh, almost everything. The only interest I have is in my uh, my daughter and my son. <laughs> well, that's not a bad. Yeah, that's not a bad to thing. To, that's right. a good place to start. You know, and that's it, why that's why I wrote the book because I, I had been offered before to write a book, maybe four or five times, and I always turned it down. But now that I am poor <laughs> and uh, old, 65 years old, and I have a 19-year-old boy and I have a 17-year-old daughter. And uh, I won't be able to send them to university, so uh, I, I'm hoping with this book that I can pay pay them university. 
It sounds good. You know, it's interesting because as for your path to hockey and playing goal, that may have never happened if it wasn't for the stellar play of another local player in LaSalle, one guy that we've actually had on the show before, Dan Bouchard, because he was promoted to Bantam and created an opening in the Peewee division. How did you come about to fill that position as a goaltender? Uh I was I was playing on the on the, the team we were on. My my brother Norm was on the first line. I was on the third line. The reason is because I was born July 28th, and uh, at that time in Quebec the the, the the limit was August 1st. So I was stuck three days in, and so I had to play with older guys. So I was playing with my brother Norm and Dan Bouchard was in net. I was on the third line. I was a forward, and my brother Norm was on the first line. But the coaches, they decided Bouchard would do better if he played Bantam because he was really, really good. Anyway, he was much older than I was. So then they, they looked around the team, and they took the smallest guy, and that was me, and they put me in nets. You know, there are a lot of great hockey books out there. Um, there's so much great hockey in this book. Tons of big-time players who you played with or against. Owners that you live with. I was not aware of the relationship you had with the Bassets. For those in our audience who do not know who John F. Bassett was, he won the Canadian Open Junior Doubles Championship in 1955 when he was 15 years old. He reached the second round of the 1959 U.S. National Championships in singles. He was on the Davis Cup Canadian team in 1959, played tennis, squash, football, and hockey at the University of Western Ontario. In 1973, he and 26 others purchased the Ottawa Nationals of the WHA for $1.8 million. The team was moved to Toronto. You pointed to your time there as what a model family life should be. You know, he took you in and you lived with him while you played for him. What, you know, what was it like living with this guy, coming from your background and then seeing what John Bassett and his family had, but yet how grounded they were as a family? Well, they were very rich, but uh, I remember the kids, they were, they were, they were, they were not spoiled. You know, the four kids they had, they, they, they raised them very, very, very well, and they were not spoiled. They were very good kids, and they, they had a way of uh, raising them that I thought was uh, very admirable. And, uh, and uh, while I was there, I could, I could see, and I was not raised, I, I was not raised that way because I, I was just a bum in a way. I was just doing whatever I wanted, you know. Uh, but, you know, uh, living there showed me, you know, maybe I would have raised kids, you know. It's also interesting to note for young people um, what's going on here in the United States that in early 1986, just months before his death, Bassett sparred with New York Generals owner Donald Trump over the league's schedule. Donald Trump favored moving the USFL to a fall schedule. John Bassett wished to keep the USFL on a spring you know, schedule. The league moved to the fall as per you know, Donald Trump and, and folded uh, shortly after right. that. Um, your relationship with the Bassett soured a bit when he tried to convince Ken Dryden to become a Toro and then the firing of a coach you respected in Billy Harris. Those things kind of went, and then things kind of went off the rails for you there. Can you tell us more about your parting ways with John and your move to the NHL? Well, uh, when they fired Billy Harris, I remember me and Emodio, were, we were crying in the room. Uh, there was like... Uh, I, 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 we had been our coach like for three years, you know, and uh, he was kind of a father figure for me, you know, Billy Harris. And when they fired him, I was really uh, not not very happy, let's say. And uh, and from that firing of Billy Harris, I just didn't give a uh, 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 what do you give an S. I didn't give a. <laughs> you didn't give an S. That's good. There you yeah, go. I didn't give an S. And I, I just started to have a real bad behavior. I just uh, they 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 
they hired Bobby LeDuc as a coach because he broke, he broke his ankle and uh, he was a player and uh, they put him as a coach. And, uh, and then he, when he would ask me to play, I would just say, no, I'm not playing. You know, I'm, uh, I don't feel like playing. I would just go to the, to the bar and get drunk. And uh, I was really not very happy. Uh, so in the summer, Bassett called me and he wanted me to come to his cottage so we can, you know, mend things up. But then I told him, you know, you fired Billy Harris. And I was really angry, and I said, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not coming back. So then he sold me to St. Louis. And that was a bad decision. <laughs> I should have stayed in Toronto, really. That was a bad decision. But from that, from that moment on, just everything went, went wrong. Now, you arrived to your St. Louis Blues team. You have a chance encounter with your future coach in the elevator. And I don't even not... know he's my coach. Right. Right, right. You, right. You said a few bad things. Bad things. If you'd known he was your coach, you probably wouldn't have said, said those that. things. So things go off the rails in St. Louis. You hit a point of no return. Uh, and then a few months later, the Rangers' John Ferguson calls and has interest uh, with you. You get to wear the infamous Ferguson-era uh, jerseys. Uh, but the jerseys seemed to be the least of the issues when it came to Fergie. You didn't like him much as a coach. The interesting thing is the way that... That John Ferguson would inform the goalies of who was playing yeah. and how the reaction to that took place. Could you fill our audience in about that? Yeah, he would come in and throw the puck either at JD, uh, John Davidson, or myself. If you threw it at JD, I would, uh, I would uh, dance around the room. I'd be so happy. <laughs> and if you threw it at me, I would just flop on the floor crying. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> Now, while you're a Ranger, you become very friendly with New York Rangers legend Rod Gilbert, who shows you the best of New York. Uh, what was it like hanging with number seven here in New York? Oh, it's fantastic because he was like, he was like a mentor to me. You know, uh, he showed me like around New York. He, uh, I, li- I lived at his place for quite a while, uh, especially in the last few months. And uh, I know he took care of me. He was just a real good mentor, a good friend, and. Uh, you know, uh, anytime he went to a show, he would take me. You know, we were in, we're in LA, and uh, he says, "Hey, let's go. We're going to see Gino Vanelli, You know, and uh, so we we take a cab, and then we would go to a show, and uh, like we just go in the back door, and Gino Vanelli as a sit on the stage just behind the curtains, and we're watching the show. You know, and they're taking us to Las Vegas while we're in, in LA, taking us to Las Vegas to see Paul Anka. Uh, I don't know, so many things. Uh, uh, the Eagles, that was Rod. Rod knew everybody. I don't know. He knew every star. He knew every band. And so we, we got friends with the Eagles. We got friends with uh, Palenka and uh, uh, Gino Vanelli. I don't know. It was just, it was just great. You know, and you, that was, uh, it was great. It was great for me because I, I didn't really want to be there <laughs> in New York you, you, that year. You talked at the beginning of the chapter. You really didn't like New York. Did you come to like New York after you just liked New York because of what Roger Gilbert did to make it fun for you? Yeah, I like New York. I like New York. Uh, the the nightlife and the, you know the crazy stuff. I like New York for that. That's for sure. One of the guys that you didn't get along so swimmingly with here in New York was uh, Phil Esposito. You kind of had a run in with him, which really kind of sealed your fate. And pretty pretty much that was the the final Gilles Graton run in that you know really sent you packing. What was that all about? Well, I was on. The, we were practicing one morning, and he came to me and he said. Uh, uh, you're not practicing very hard. I was just, I was hanging on the boards, you know. I was just, 
standing on the board, you know, and he said, uh, you're, not, you're not practicing very hard. I said, no, nah, with with, I have so much talent, I don't need to practice. <laughs> and he says, uh, well, if you don't play, I says, are you playing in Toronto Saturday? I said, yes. He said, uh, and you're not practicing very hard. I said, no, I don't need to, so much talent. And he says, uh, well, if you don't play well on Saturday, you're going to hear from me. And I just got, uh, I won't say, the, 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 I won't swear here, but I said, you just get out of here, man, or I'm going to break your face. That's what I said, basically, but it was worse than that. Hey. And he kind of looked at me, and he was, like, stunned because nobody talked to him that way because he was king in the room, you know. Right. And uh, nobody talked to him that way, so he kind of, he was kind of taken aback, and, and he just left. And after that, in the room, he, he trying to suck up to me, you know, Jilly, you know, trying to, well, they called me Count at the time. So he says, Count, you know, and I was going to go after him. I says, whatever, you know, F you. And I, and I was going to go after him. And then uh, I remember Goldsworthy and Roger Bear held me back. <laughs> and then, you know, evidently he went to the next day I was at Rod's house and he said they had a meeting right. that night and he said, you're done, you're finished. I said, I don't care. <laughs> Another famous Jules Gratton story is the time you streaked at the George Bell Arena. Can you tell our audience a little bit about what possessed you to do that? Well, first of all, it's not as bad as it looks because it was just a small arena. There was just a few photographers there and maybe a few newspaper guy. And uh, I asked the trainer for for a dozen sticks, for a couple, of, well, some a dozen sticks for the kids, because we used to play uh, ball hockey on, on uh, street hockey, you know, where I lived with uh, Dylan, the Dillons. We used to go to, to the school, and we used to play uh, street hockey with the kids. And I asked the trainer, you know, for maybe a dozen sticks that I could, you know, give to the kids, you know, in my neighborhood. And he said, well, if you streak, he says, I'll give you, I'll give you 12 sticks. So I, uh, I just put my mask on, and I streaked around the ice. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and a, a photographer took pictures, but uh, Buck Hooley, Went to him and, and he got all the the roles and uh, so he wouldn't put him in the in the paper. Uh, lastly, looking back, when you see all the quotes from so many people in this book about how talented you were and what you could have been had you applied yourself, and the fact that you were out of hockey by the age of twenty four years old, is there any sense of regret? And if you could do things over, would you do anything differently? Well, sure. You, you I don't have any regret about hockey. It's not bad. It's just. I think the bad decision was to leave Toronto. That was a bad decision. I had a five-year contract, you know, in Toronto. Right. And uh, and from that moment on, everything went went south, you know. And uh, maybe that that's. But you know, I really don't regret because maybe I wouldn't have if if it would have been if it would have gone that way, I would not have I would not have met my present wife. I would not I would not have my two kids. You know what I mean? Gotcha. Yeah. You know, it would have been. I would have had a different life. So no, I don't regret anything because I'm very. I'm, I'm very happy right now. I've got my my two kids that I love very much, and uh, I have a, I have an, an easy job at Classic and uh, Classic Auction. I have a very easy job, and uh, you know, uh, it's not important to me. You know, I'm gonna die. You know, I'm just gonna die. I'm 65. I'm I'm gonna be out of here in about maybe what 10, 15, 20 years. So what's the difference? You know. Well, before uh, you go, I have no regrets, but, but, really. Jills, before you check out, l let's try and get that money for the kids, you know, for the, for right. schooling. So tell our audience where they can pick up this great new book, Gratuni the Looney. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, 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 uh
right. That, that's where they can get the book. You want to meet and 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 uh, with a, a piano, with piano tune. Sally, yeah, a, let it be. That would be awesome if you could play us out. We love it, Jills. Thanks so much. Okay, I'm gonna play this out. And again, I apologize for the voice. It's not very good. <laughs> it was excellent the you first Can you hear that? Yes. Yeah. yeah Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Jill's Gratton, co-author of Gratuni the Looney, available everywhere now.